Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security and international cooperation. December marked the 2019 meeting of the state's parties to the Biological Weapons Convention in Geneva. In this episode, we discussed biological weapons and the Biological Weapons Convention with a London-based expert. And at Geneva Peace Week, we looked into the global refugee crisis and the stigma surrounding refugees. We spoke to Dr. Philippa Lensos. She's a mixed-method social scientist researching biological threats based at King's College London. She's also an associate senior researcher at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute and the NGO coordinator for the Biological Weapons Convention. Sure. Well, the Biological Weapons Convention is um, an international treaty that completely prohibits the use of biological weapons. And it's been enforced for a number of years since, you know, 1976 now. And so uh, really uh, a long time. Um, And there should be no countries in the world that develop biological weapons uh, or that would use biological weapons. And that's really what that treaty is there to ensure that we maintain this norm against biological weapons because the world considers this form of weaponry so abhorrent that it's completely banned. Unlike the other, um, you know, weapons of mass destruction, the nuclear side, uh, we ban some things, but not all things. Some are allowed to have nuclear weapons, not er- but not everybody. Uh, on the chemical side, again, there are, there are bans on chemical weapons, but for certain things like national domestic riot control, for instance, you are allowed to use chemical weapons. Um, They wouldn't be termed chemical weapons. They'd be termed things like tear gas, but essentially they are the same sorts of things. So these other conventions have all these other exceptions to them, but the Biological Weapons Convention is special in the sense that it completely prohibits these sorts of weapons. How do you guarantee that governments or those members who are are part of the convention or do they sign up for the convention? How do you guarantee that they abide by that? Or is that the point of the convention? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head exactly right there. So today we've got, um, we've just had Tanzania join as well. So we're now at 183 states parties to the convention, which is pretty much global. We're missing about 10 countries or something like that, but we're pretty much global. How do we ensure everybody sticks to the convention? This is really the sticking point because with biology, unlike with chemicals and and, and nuclear weapons, the the, the biological side is is, is, is so dual, it's so dual use, so it's so ubiquitous everywhere. Um, you, can, you have what you need to create a weapon almost in you know, a, a beer brewery, for instance, wow. or uh, in a pharmaceutical company that produces vaccines, well, it could also be changed around to produce weapons. And so because so much of this both the science and the equipment and the facilities that you need to weaponize disease, essentially, um, is sort of readily available. It becomes very hard to check. 
Yeah, I mean, over the years, that's changed quite substantially. So in the beginning, I mean, this fun, fun, fundamentally, this is a treaty by states for states. Um, and it was negotiated, you know, in the depths of the Cold War. Uh, this is a long time ago when the idea of public engagement looked very different to, to what it does today. Um, and so part of the process over the years has really been to make sure the treaty, you know, m continues to be a living document and is relatable and relevant to its stakeholders. And because biology is so ubiquitous, mm -hmm. uh, the stakeholders are broad, you know, uh, when you look at all the other, all of us, right? Of us, right? And if you look, if you look at the other treaties, it's very much focused. If in the nuclear, for instance, it's very much is very specialized within the military. Um, here, we're actually talking about university labs. We're talking about undergraduate students. We're talking. This is relevant to everybody. And so the main stakeholders of the treaty are essentially the publics, the various publics that we have. And, and they so were not involved. they were not involved to start off with. So there's a, there's a big role today to get that sort of engagement from all these various stakeholders in the Biological Weapons Convention. And certainly um, individual scientists, but also these national uh, science academies and the international uh, bodies. Uh, within the sciences play an important role in providing, you know, expert guidance in, in, in explaining where the science is at at the moment, what, what's possible, what could become possible. Um, all those things also, you know, yeah. hospital labs and industry and biotech startups and synthetic biology and companies and all of gene editing companies, all these sorts of stakeholders playing an, an important role. And so we've seen a general opening up of the convention and the meetings to bring in civil society. We're not where we want to be yet. There are more people on the move than ever before. Every minute, at least 30 people around the world are newly displaced. Half of the world's refugees are children and thousands take flight without the protection of parents or other family members. During Geneva Peace Week, Xavier Collin, a GCSP Associate Fellow, discussed the world's growing refugee crisis with Dr. Muna Ismail, Programme Manager of Refugees as Rebuilders at Initiatives of Change UK and founder of the YEHEB project. It was 2011 and it in the region of Horn of Africa, where Somalia is situated, um, there was a drought which killed more than 200,000 people, 5% of that being children. Mm. And um, I remember myself sitting at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew um, and thinking what my life is for, what's the purpose of my life, um, and being angry that people are dying um, in, in country of origin, my country of origin, um, because of lack of food. Um, so that whole aspect of migration, what I had to go through, the trauma, the displacement, all surfaced. Mm -hmm. And um, so I made a conscious decision 
to get out of labs because my work was more um, working in, in labs mm -hmm. and just get out of labs and apply uh, my transferable skills, my knowledge to something which could build a worthwhile life um, or some, some kind of a meaningful um, actions for people who are suffering in my country of origin because I, um, you know, people when they are displaced, um, it's you either um, have um, this feeling that you don't want to have anything mm -hmm. to do with country of origin. Um, some people have longing for country mm -hmm. of origin. I never felt longing for country of origin and doing something up until that time. Uh, not very many people act like the way you are. Some people just forget about the country they, they come from. So you're really now involved, you know, firsthand what is happening in Somalia. Yeah. Give us some examples of what you're doing yeah. with the refugees. Because one yes. thing is to talk about the refugees. Well, yeah. Another thing is, what do you do with yes. them? How do you help them? Yes. And with which purpose? With yes. what purpose? In 2014, I joined um, Initiatives of Change by chance. I was led, this mm. is how I believe, I was led to this organization, which I never thought was existing in London. Mm. Um, when I joined um, Initiatives of Change, my first assignment was to train um, women of ethnic minorities. And then following on that, um, I was given the assignment to come up with a training program for diaspora leaders, mm -hmm. um, mainly from the Horn of Africa. Um, and that ch in the, having that chance, I, um, I moved on to do more practical training. And in 2016, we came up with the seeing people crossing um, Mediterranean seas, crossing the, um, the borders from um, Turkey into mm. Europe, um, many of them from Syria at the time, which was really experiencing the onset of the civil, Syrian civil war. But not only from Syria. And yes, course, but also from, 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 yeah, from Horn of Africa. But the, the, that influxed in 2015, mid-2015 um, to late 2015, were mainly from the, the Turkish route, mm -hmm. um, and they were mainly from Syrians and Afghans and Iranian. Um, but then there was also an unease in, in, in the European countries and soil that they were entering. Um, so we came up with the idea, um, we kind of coined up the phrase refugees as rebuilders, mm -hmm. because the refugees, if you see them as people who are just coming in, to take every opportunities from the communities that they're coming to live with, mm -hmm. um, that's a negative connotation that you're going to tag on 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 these mm -hmm. um, so what's, people. So what is the positive connotation? Yes. Yeah, the positive connotation is the name refugees as rebuilders, and we have seen in within the initiatives of change tens of thousands of people um, 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 wanting. Um, through the training that Initiatives of Change provided mm -hmm. and through the stories of these people and in Somalia, which was um, a place that they originated in these people, returning mm -hmm. and, 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 and filling in um, every sector and rebuilding their countries of origin. So the rebuilding aspect was an example that we drew 
from the experience of Somalis who came to settle in Europe and mainly also in, in Britain and who at that time, many of them, mm -hmm. um, returning to countries of origin. So if these refugees coming to Europe were given the support and care and, um, and, 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 and place to live, mm -hmm. um, they will be well, what we thought one day and it's, it's, most of them will be the ones who will rebuild their countries of origin. Okay. That is the, that's, the, um, that's the idea. Okay, but the fact is how many people are involved in that program? Are they really willing to do this and what are the means? Who is going to help them financially uh, to do that? And on top of that, to rebuild what? Okay. In the country, what, what, what is the field of action? Okay, the Refugees as Rebuilders is a training program. So what we do is we train diaspora, settled refugees. Um, we, are, um, we have a faculty of training mm -hmm. within, within IFC, Initiatives of Change UK. The faculty consists of trainers, trainers mm -hmm. who train the participants who are taking part in this course. Mm -hmm. So we have different levels of the course. And once a participant finishes the third level of the course, they go on to mentoring. And after the mentoring, they will be um, equipped with practical tools mm -hmm. um, to, um, to use should they want to return their country, to their countries mm -hmm. of origin. Um, the course is um, based on what we call a three-legged stool, um, which is... Um, Give us just some examples of that, those particular tools yes. so that we understand what rebuilding exactly means. Okay, so mm -hmm. once a participant is enrolled into the course, they... they, they they start their foundation level of the course. And with that foundation, they are introduced to practical tools in ethical leadership for just governance, mm -hmm. in dialogue for social cohesion, for trust building, and in sustainable livelihood for creating innovative economic and livelihood options for countries who are conflict affected, which are conflict affected mm -hmm. and, um, and fragile. So once they, ask, um, once they get these tools from the foundations, mm -hmm. they develop further at the intermediate level and they apply their, these skills um, at the advanced level. And by the time they finish the advanced level and the course, they have further six months of mentoring and at which point they, are, they, they most likely be ready mm -hmm. to follow their calling and to do some um, local community-based or um, work within the in in their countries of origin mm -hmm. and if they can't return in their countries of origin within their community in in diaspora setting that's all for today's podcast for the gcsp thanks for listening and thank you to dr philippa lenzos for joining us along with dr muna ismar join us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security make sure you subscribe to the podcast on itunes until then bye for now